Hello and welcome to Tipsy Tolstoy, Russian literature for the inebriated. I'm Matt Garismovich, a PhD student in Russian lit. And I'm Cameron Lalana. This is a podcast where me and my good pal Cameron get to unwind from our week with some Russian literature and a drink or two. This week, we're joined by Dr. Ian Garner, who's going to be helping us make sense of Pavel Nilan's short story, The Polychaevs, as we slowly continue morphing into just a socialist realism podcast. <laughs> uh, Dr. Garner is a historian, editor, and translator who completed his PhD at the University of Toronto in 2017 after studying at the University of Bristol and St. Petersburg State Conservatory. His academic work focuses on Soviet and Russian literary and cultural representations of World War II, and he is on a mission to illuminate the hidden sides of Soviet life, a world of thoughts and feelings hidden behind closed doors and the Iron Curtain through engaging wider Western audiences in recent academic discoveries. His work on Stalingrad and Russian culture has been featured in numerous publications and showcased in talks at universities, museums, and conferences in North America, Europe, and Russia. Ian, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me, and thank you for that stellar introduction. I'm really excited to be here and to talk about this really obscure piece of socialist realist fiction that... You, I, I think, are probably some of the first people ever to have read this in English because I translated it into English myself. It's an offcut from my uh, from my forthcoming book, Stalingrad Lives. I couldn't quite cram it in there. The book is already too long, and I'm, I'm battling with it. But it's a really cool little story. It's got some interesting stuff going on, so it'll be uh, it'll be fun to discuss it and to bring Pavel Nil in the author to. Uh, to Western readers a little bit, because I don't think there's anything of his that actually exists in any English translation whatsoever. It barely exists in Russian anymore. <laughs> that's great. We always say that's what we want to cover on the podcast. We're only doing the big names so that people stick around when we de- we decide to cover the smaller texts. That's what we're here for, mostly. <laughs> well, this is this is the smallest text. It's it's not just obscure. <laughs> it's also really short, right? It's like seven thousand words long, so anyone can get through this. One. Yeah, and we'll be. Um, it's available on um, on Ian's website, so we'll be linking that in the show notes. If you yourself want to take a look at it, it's it's really really fun, really fun read. In addition to being in, in addition to being pretty quick. Before we get into today's episode, we wanted to remind everyone that our Crime and Punishment series is going to be kicking off next episode. Grab a copy of the book through our affiliate links on our website and consider becoming a Patreon to join our monthly reading group. For as little as $3 a month, you can get access to early episodes, join our reading group, and have a say in what we read next. If you're not interested in Patreon but still want to help us out, you can leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts or sign up for our email list on our website, tipsytolstoy.com. Great updates, Cameron. Thank you. <laughs> uh, but before we get into the reading today, uh, Matt, Ian, I've got a question for you. Uh, what are you two uh, drinking today? Well, um, I, I am actually just waiting for a COVID test result to come back. So normally I would love at eight o'clock on a Monday evening to get cracking on a nice glass of wine. But I feel that's a very, very bad idea. We're going to edit out all my coughs and harumphs, but I just have a nice comforting cup of coffee. <laughs> that's a good call. That's a good call. Well, I will cheers to a hopefully negative COVID test uh, with my... With my uh, my concoction that I've made with things around my house. Uh, this is a uh, yes, a glass of ice first, then <laughs> Trader Joe's gingerbread liqueur second, <laughs> and then a splash of bourbon third, and then I stir it together, and that's um, that's how I record. So, <laughs> what about you, Cameron? Not sober. <laughs> 
I'm drinking. Um, so I've got I've got a beer with a little bit of a story. So a friend of mine recently had a Polish heritage uh, day at her work, and that included one of the the actual one of our actually Polish coworkers coming up with a bunch of Polish tongue twisters, which are to be clear tongue twisters in Polish that are difficult for him to say. Um, and then made it a competition out of it, which she won, which she does not speak any Polish. But for, for winning that, she won a PRL Schmelinie beer. Don't know how to pronounce that, uh, which uh, translated by Yandex has helpfully told me that this is uh, very translates to hoppy beer. So drinking a Polish pale ale, I think. I honestly don't know what any, any of these things on here say. Can't say that this is legally imported in the U.S., but I'm excited to try it. Uh, <laughs> Dubious imports aside. <laughs> that's what That's what we're all about here. Uh, so, yeah, that aside, let's get into uh, the Polikhaevs. Uh, before we, we talk about the story proper, Ian, are there, is there, so like you mentioned, uh, this is from an author, Pavel Neal, not, not a, a name that probably a lot of people listening to this have heard before. Could you talk to us briefly about, uh, about Mr. Neal? Oh, boy, can Neil I? Neal. Uh, nobody's ever <laughs> asked me to do this before. I'm so excited. Um, so this guy, I mean, he's not a great author, right? He's... Nobody who's going to read this story is going to think, well, this is the undiscovered Tolstoy, the Dostoevsky of the 20th century that we were missing. But I think he's interesting as a socialist realist author because of his very ordinary background and because of the way he went about producing his stories. He's he's almost so average as to be exceptional. So this guy is born in Irkutsk, 1908, to really very humble origins, a peasant family. He has a brother, and interestingly, you can tell how peasanty they are because he and the brother correspond, and I've read the correspondence in the archives, and they write to each other in these like terribly ungrammatical Russian, and especially the brother is it's barely literate, even well into the forties, and he gets to be some like supremo manager on a dairy farm somewhere close to Irkutsk. So you know, in in Soviet terms, he's really made it. But Nilin spends. The 1920s, he clearly gets on board with the Bolsheviks pretty quick, kind of meaning, you know, he's only a child when the revolution happens, but he's a policeman in the 1920s. Can't tell you what he was up to, can't tell you how sketchy and uh, immoral anything that he might have been doing in the 20s was, but by the mid-30s, he has become an author. He starts publishing some short stories, and he really makes a name for himself as a writer of children's stories and sort of young adult fiction during the war. And I I would say the Polikhaevs, the story we're looking at, is really a young adult work. This is not designed for people in their 30s, 40s, and whatever else. And during the war, he really makes such a name that he's able to use this, as many authors do during the wartime, to a greater career after the war. So to the point that by the late 40s, I know that other writers are writing to him for advice on, you know, dear Mr. Nilin, how can I improve my story? How can I get this published? Um, Alexander Tvaratovsky, who becomes the editor of Novimir, the big literary journal, holds him up in 1950 as a great example of, of a writer. And he produces a, a, really a couple of major works. In the late 30s, he has this work, uh, A Big Life, and there is a film version of it. And this is the most, like, prototypical socialist realist work you can possibly imagine. It's about some miners in Ukraine, and they really, really want to beat a production record. But there's a wrecker on the mine, and so they go down into the mine, and they have to, like, face down the wrecker. And they emerge from the miners' heroes, and the book is 
I'm going to be honest, boring and overly long. And the film is equally boring and equally overlong. I'm really not selling this guy. Um, <laughs> then he has he has a bit of a hiccup in the early 50s. I haven't quite managed to ever work out what the hiccup is. There's virtually no written sources on on Nilin. Um and I've actually been in contact with his his children and grandchildren, and they don't know what happened either. But there is some awkwardness in the early 50s. Um, however, that seems to miraculously go away, I suspect, when Stalin dies. And he publishes his second big work, which is called Gestokast Cruelty. And that is about young people in the 1920s who are involved in criminality and policing, so clearly based on his own life. Now, this particular story he writes either in the very late 1940s or in the early 1950s. Um, and if you would like, we can do a little potted summary of the plot, but maybe one of you would like to do it because it's it's such a curious little story. I'm interested to know what your take is on it. Yeah. Well, let me, I'm going to try to try to do it justice. We're going to try not to uh, do I'm not going to do a classic Cameron and, and spend like nearly half the length of an episode summarizing a work. <laughs> um, for some reason, no matter like the shorter the work, the more granular I get, and the longer I take. Uh, I'm going to try to avoid doing that. So we open um, the Polychayevs with um, grandmother basically waiting out by the highway uh, for, for her grandson. It's noted that she's been out there for the last couple of days, and, and she and, and the grandfather have been waiting for uh, their grandson to return by the highway. It seems like he's not going to come that day. He's, he's already late, and they're really not certain uh, until kind of late in the day after they've already given up. Uh, their grandson, or rather, kind of a stranger arrives, and they realize as he gets closer that this is their grandson, uh, Petya Petenka. Um, and to the delight of, of his grandmother, and a little bit to the consternation of his his grandfather, as uh, Petenka uh, isn't wearing either a proper hat and boots, and his grandfather's kind of like, did you drink your hat away? And I think Petenka's supposed to be in his late teens, so... 16. 16, okay, yeah. I calculated it using the dates backwards, yeah. So he's he's okay. very young. <laughs> Quite yeah, a little bit young to have have, have uh, drunk away his hat at any at any rate. <laughs> I mean, not that there's a good age for that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so they 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 you know to the light of the grandparents they bring they bring the grandson inside, and they sit him down with their with two of their boarders, uh, Veria and Galia, who are two surveyors working in the area. Uh, they begin talking. The grandfather uh, Yerofe Kuzmich kind of is reflecting as they begin to talk that he really doesn't know who his grandson is. Um, and they, they discuss why he's late. The grandson is, is learning to work with cement, which really pleases his grandfather, who is a, a bricklayer, as I understand it, and um, is really pleased with kind of the direction he's going. And uh, the grandson seems very humble. And even though he doesn't really know him, he is getting roughly a good impression of him. Uh, as they're ha- sitting there and having a couple drinks and uh, a few things to eat, uh, the grandmother, uh, Nadia, begins to reminisce about uh, the siege of Stalingrad, uh, which is when they had they'd all been separated. What Yerefe, her husband, tries to stop her, but Apetia kind of says, "No, actually, I would like you to continue. I, I don't know that much about this era." And, and so then she goes on to reflect more on that time in which both of their sons uh, had died at, during the siege of Stalingrad, uh, as well as the as Petya's mother um, also disappearing along with with her husbands, which leaving left the two of them to take care of Petya. Um, and then after a long time, and things are getting really bad in Stalingrad. Um, and the grandmother Nadia finally convinces Yerefe to to evacuate Petsia. So they bring him to a boat, which is already quite a quite a quite an adventure, as the the city is already war torn. They're worried about planes on the way there. They encounter an escaped elephant, which Petsia is quite quite enamored with. Um, and then this whole adventure leads to them getting Petsia to the boat, which then promptly is attacked by German planes and capsizes. Um, 
the grandparents obviously devastated go back home believing their son or their grandson had to be dead to find that while they were gone their home had been had been bombed had been destroyed um thus forcing them to a shelter which they live out most of the rest of the siege in um until finally you know Eurofade decides we can't just keep doing this and let's let's build a home I, i'm a bricklayer it's kind of ridiculous that we're just waiting here um, and as they're building this home, um, which, which are actually surprisingly, they're able to get the permits and materials for quite easily. They find out from a friend of theirs that, that their grandson's actually alive and going to school uh, far east. And after a while, they try to they write him. And a, a year later, finally, he gets back in contact. And through his training, coming back to Stalingrad, um, he's able to meet with his parents again, which story is kind of wrapping up on a nice note until kind of inadvertently, uh, one of the surveyors, uh, I think Vera, reveals that the Volga is going to be widened. Um, which means that the grandparents' house, the last thing, the last major thing they maybe will be doing with their lives is going to be destroyed soon, um, which they all tried to hide from their grandmother before she kind of reveals that she is not as, as dull as everyone seems to think she is and kind of goes off on them for trying to protect her from, you know, the life she's living, which is more or less where it ends off as the grandfather says, you know, let's let's kind of get off this topic. Let's go visit. Um, I think it's the dam that he wanted to show Petya earlier in the story. So it's a pretty brief piece, but really a lot of really interesting interactions happening here in, in a really short period of time. There is there's an awful there is an awful lot poured into this story, isn't there? There's so much plot. It's it is what seven thousand eight eight thousand words long. So you can you can read the entire thing in half an hour if you want. And it, the language isn't complicated. It's it's designed to be accessible to teens and to people who are pretty much barely literate or learning to read. But there's a lot of humanity in it as well, isn't there? Yeah. The parts, the part, it's not what you would expect. Me having told you that Neil in the 30s was cranking out these like really dull, prototypical socialist realist works. There are parts of it that are really quite touching. The way that the grandmother is, is characterized in the beginning of the story, you know, hovering around and just sort of shuffling around the house and going out into the street and looking and waiting for Pietia, please come back, please come back. And... The story of how the the grandfather is almost killed in Stalingrad, he's he's shot and miraculously survives. There's there's a whole sort of mythical symbolism around the resurrection of the city that we can get into if you're interested. But this is why this story is so interesting to me, is that it shows that socialist realism has this capacity for for humanity and for people in a way that people just by people, I mean sort of Western readers really just don't anticipate about this genre. They don't anticipate, especially a work in written in 1950, 1951, the height of Stalinism, and certainly Stalingrad stories that were written at the time, many of them, there were a lot of these sort of reconstruction stories about the rebuilding of the city, but many of them were about, you know, Stalin is God and gave us this glorious victory at Stalingrad. He laid the people down sacrificed millions of them, thus was born new life. It's this sort of weird, quasi-religious stuff. But this story is very, very ordinary, very human. Yeah, I think that I like the... In the simplicity, there's something much more complex kind of that almost masks... The simplicity of it kind of masks something more complex going on, I think, uh, in that it... when. I read Cement for the first time probably like a couple of years ago. I was amazed at kind of the psychological character that it was able to retain. And I still kind of felt like this almost, it's like almost a Skaz sort of style. Um, it's just very much like, 
I, I don't know. It felt just very personal, and still even <laughs> even relatable. Weirdly, um, in in some parts, I mean, you kind of felt like you were sitting down at this table with everybody observing this conversation happening. I thought it was fascinating. I think there were there were two layers to the personality in the story here. The first is historical. Um, and that is to do with the fate of Nilin's mother, who I believe was killed during the war. I'll talk more about in the second. And the second is to do with the language itself. And I think Nilin has this really good command. I know, like many socialist realist authors, he wasn't just sitting in an office in Moscow imagining how people spoke. He was going out to the people and observing. He was going to these construction sites taking notes. And interestingly, in that very long correspondence with his brother, he has his brother send him almost scripts, almost dialogues of things he's heard around the village, related somewhat as gossip and somewhat as, you know, hey, Bogle, here's some stuff you can stick into your next story. You put it in verbatim. And I wonder, you know, we don't have notes for this particular story. I wonder how much of this story is based on real stuff. So it's it's interesting that you mentioned this idea of scuzz because I think there is almost almost an element of that, mm-hmm. right, in the straightforwardness of the language. It's not as tricksy as scuzz. It's not as sort of cyclical. There's none of these arabesques that Gogol likes to lead us down. I think this issue of his mother is particularly interesting as well because if we're talking about personality and personal feelings in the story, many people have made note that Vasily Krosman in Life and Fate in Stalingrad writes about his mother, who was Jewish and was killed in the Holocaust in Berdychev. And Grossman was always, he had a deep sense of guilt that he didn't use his power, he didn't use a position more to save his mother or to attempt to save his mother. Whether he could have done or not is a different question. I, you have to read between the lines a little bit, but I wonder to what extent the grandmother character in this story is a bit of a bit of Nilin's own mother. And I know there are many literary critics who hate this kind of biographical reading of, of texts, but I think it's it's really inescapable here. And at some point in the narrative, you may not have noticed, but I noticed this when I was picking over it, rereading it before this podcast. Nilin snip slips from this third person narrator into this, you wouldn't imagine the things we saw, you wouldn't imagine the things that we lived through back then. That it's not the grandmother or the grandfather talking, it's actually him talking, right? It's him addressing you, the reader, directly. It's really, you're right, I didn't didn't notice that, uh, because I I have to say the characters in talking about um, how he's getting these snippets from his brother that 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 kind of mind that, that those things he's paying attention to makes sense because in the way that you're reading just reading the characters just simply in the way they're characterized especially what really drew, drew me in was that dynamic between the, the grandmother and the grandfather it's not just like these are two people you know existing telling a story with their grandson you you get a sense that this is that they, they have an interaction they have a dynamic they've got a life lived together where they're kind of will get on each other or they'll be uh, sweet to each other or they'll, they'll cut each other off and say no you're not telling the story the right way or you know he doesn't want to hear this and you know like it's it's a dynamic that I, you know you see in in in, in some people and it, it feels very real in a way that either you have to be a, a, you know someone who's like just great at bringing together characters or who's got an eye for watching how relationships form and how people act around each other um it's really just fascinating to see him put like on his like better character development than i see in a, frankly most work 
uh, most works in general and like creating such a such a sense of, of reality and character in, in like you said, like this very short piece of work. Yeah, I, I, and I think that the characterization of the grandmother and the grandfather is really quite delightful, isn't it? It's really quite charming. This little relationship where they just, they nag at each other and scold each other and... Yeah, they, they really love each other and they've been through so much and they do, they do have that up and down kind of dynamic. You're right. I think the characterization of the others is a little bit flimsy. Pietio especially seems like a very empty vessel. And, and in that, this is a much more typical piece of socialist realism, right? That this 16-year-old boy has nothing to offer and very little to say except the choice between being the sort of fancy dandy who would wear the wrong sort of boots and drink his cap away or between like his wonderful grandfather going into the bricklaying trade right that that's it he's one of two things and we and we know exactly what he stands in for the characters of the the surveyors as well i, I think are quite roughly drawn out shall we say <laughs> sexistly drawn out as yeah. well they they exist to they exist to tempt pietia and to be stupid and young and not understand that the grandparents house that they've built has to be destroyed because that's progress they're not just widening the volga for the sake of it they're widening the volga to build the hydroelectric station so that they can dam another bit of the river and by building the hydroelectric station they bring light to the city and what does bringing light mean well there's the great religious message of the story right that stalingrad has died and been resurrected now look at this wonderful construction project we can do and i believe it was the largest hydroelectric power station in the world when it was finally built there's a there's a yeah, fact I, you don't hear every day i think this was something I, I liked about the story i know it's typical of socialist realism but i was listening to something else recently uh, about just kind of writing in general and in a mistake sometimes writers or you know people will do which is taking um something where the stakes feel real and trying to amplify them to be bigger than they are maybe um for the sake of that being more impactful uh when that's not always the case in this it's kind of s small stakes compared to the general soviet union the destruction of one house um but when you get that kind of microcosm of the progress of a whole life and everything it's created being destroyed um, and willingly allowing that for the sake of progress, you get just this very, I guess, uh, generally in the grand scheme of things, small stakes, but, um, you know, through the eyes of these uh, Stalingrad survivors, really, a, a really interesting, <laughs> you know, statement on, on progress and sacrifice and, you know, kind of kind of sucks for them because the, uh, the the brick building that they were building for the orphans, like you know, back in the day, the government didn't want anything to do with, uh, and now they want, you know, now they want the house. <laughs> I know it is, it is a bit cheeky, isn't it? Yeah, but you know, it's, it's, I suppose the idea is that you're asking for more and more sacrifices, and and the great movement in Stalingrad at at the time, and really as soon as the battle ended, was this sort of opening the battle on the construction front. So as soon as the fighting has really ended, off they go and they clear the corpses from the city. They mention this in the in the story, and they mm -hmm. they gloss over that. But that was a grim job indeed. I think the statistic I read was something like 
ten to 20,000 corpses were cleared in the month after the battle ended in Stalingrad. So that, you know, deeply, deeply unpleasant work for these people that would have been starving and, and dying in the city. And then they sacrifice more and more. They sacrifice their living conditions and they, they build the building and then they sacrifice that building to give it to the orphanage. Then they build another building and they sacrifice that. And yet they feel the whole time, and this is really what socialist realism is about, that like we're always constructing something that's better. There is a real sense of utopianism, and people did come flooding to Stalingrad. People wanted to come to Stalingrad after the battle had finished to join in this sort of construction battle. Many thousands of people really did feel and really did request permission to go to Stalingrad so they could help there. Which seem, which makes it seem like this, this house building is low stakes, but you're right, it is microcosmic of something much bigger. And the sacrifice that happened in the war makes the stakes of that 1930s coal production target story seem like nothing, right? In a way, yeah, that's what I find... For me, the more I am researching and doing work around socialist realism, I find it really interesting that, yeah, that's exactly what I th- I would have thought. And I think maybe that's the perception and reason that people don't like it is because you think you're going to have some big communist triumph at the end of it. Uh, when really, it, it reminds me even, even of maybe Platonov in some instances, what really communism is, it's a small... Well, not small, but it's a personal sacrifice. It's done at a smaller level. It's not, it's not you yourself triumphing through, you know, the land to establish communism. It's what you can do, kind of in in your community, almost at home. Um, and I think that's like such an an interesting thing to be pushing at the same time on a mass scale. <laughs> the, the 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 smallness, but on a mass scale, is what I find fascinating. Yeah, I think I think you're right, and I just, it's almost an unfair comparison with Platonov because Platonov's really yeah. good, and <laughs> Lilith's just like Pasha. Good job, you made it out of Irkutsk. <laughs> you're writing some stories now. I'm so proud of you. But there is there is something in here that's that's deeply profound, and I think if if we were to pick characters who are deeply profound and tell us something about that sense of time and progress, then the experiences of the grandmother are clearly the most important in the story. There are just just some beautiful moments in the story and the, and the way the narrative is constructed where we... It almost reminds me of the bronze, bronze Horseman. Again, not nearly as good, but these pendants between... Swinging between creation and destruction and grief and happiness and the past and the future... And at times, in terms of the past and future, the grandmother has these experiences where you'd almost call them flashbacks, but they're not really flagged up as flashbacks. They sort of come upon you so fast that you don't realise that suddenly she's she's thinking back to the past and quite viscerally re-experiencing. And, you know, we hear that she cries and almost breaks down in the present, but she's re-experiencing that trip through Stalingrad in August 1942 when the city is on fire, right? And she's just trying to get her little grandson out of the city and save him. And we hear that, you know, her dress is burning. and she's, she's running through the city. And if you want a sense of what that day was like, 40,000 people died on that day in Stalingrad. 
So this is, you know, again, one small experience, but many people reading this story would have looked at that and thought, yep, this is, this says something to me. This says something about what it was like during the war and what we can do now to, to make sense of all of that. And so the grandmother's swinging back and forth between the past and the present and trauma and what is the opposite of trauma? Harmony, perhaps? But these sort of disjunct memories and this sense of a harmonized future or a harmonized present, that's really, I think, what we're supposed to experience in the story. And it's what I get from the story. This sense of jarringness, constantly striving for resolution. And we realize that the grandmother has found it. Right, That little moment where they're all sort of quietly whispering away at the end of the story without the grandmother saying, oh, don't, you know, nobody nobody tell Granny the house is going to be destroyed. She's not going to like that. She won't be able to cope. And then she's like, listen up, kids. I know exactly what's what. I built this house with my bare two hands. Nothing's going to shock me. Her life is, is purposeful. Yeah, that was definitely my experience. The con- The construction of the story... I we had to go back and reread several times because I would be reading and then I'd be like, wait a minute, what year are we in? Like, it would catch me off guard sometimes. I'd be like, wait a minute, he couldn't have just died. That wouldn't make sense. And I was like, oh, this is a flashback, right? But yeah, it's interesting that they're not all flagged like that. And I think that makes a, from a construction point of view, it's interesting. It's psychological. It like I said, caught me off guard several times. Um, as I was going, I don't know about you, Cameron, but for me, it did. No, yeah, it definitely did. And well, it, it did, it did kind of draw me in because it, it is very much like, again, I know kind of already hammering on this point of like how it, like it does have a deep sense of realism to me. It's, it's like talking to an old elderly relative about like a world war two wartime experience and the way that it is kind of fluid because it's, I mean, obviously for these two, it's only been a handful of years, less than a decade, but it, it is kind of <clears throat> similar to that like that experience and it like that is again I, i'm still really hammering on this on this point but the way in which um Nilian is, is able to take this very personal very individual story and make it almost not exactly universalized but in but in talking about larger events through one single life it captures it so much better than you could by trying to capture every single thing like the basic story here is two grandparents who tried to, who, who evacuated their grandson and a couple of years later he comes back home and they talk about what happened in between that's for this era i'm sure not at all an uncommon story maybe mutatis mutandis it's the parents it's you know a daughter it's his cousin it's whatever but like the basic idea is, is very familiar and then they're just trying to they're really realizing this is now a stranger and they're trying to catch each other up and they talk about their their wartime experiences and their personal struggles i mean they didn't wait for someone to go give them a new house. They say, no, let's not wait for the council to give us a house. We're just going to build one. And the councils, when they tell them that, just say, okay, we don't really care. Here's some materials, I guess. And even when they try to give them their house, like they're like, I, we have bigger things. We don't want your your tiny little house. We, we could get more actual money to do these things. And in and, and telling this this tale and having it, it, it like, in many ways this does, it, this is pretty traditional for the conventions of socialist realism, but the strong at least to me, this emphasis on on like the individual and their particular lives and, and their agency is not what I was expecting. And but in doing so and in taking this this like relatively unique story, it does make it feel universalized in a way that, like you've said, and when reading this can say, yeah, this like roughly feels these emotions, even if it's not exactly what I felt, these rough emotions they're going through of loss, of of need to do something, of like duty, of of whatever. Is something I can relate to, which is even having not obviously 
obviously not lived through Stalingrad. It's a set of tangible emotions I can grasp onto and try to understand that era or that mentality. And you really do get like a sense of the, the type of people who came out of this experience and how it changed them. I don't know if it's fair to do this every time I can do it, but I'll just say it. When I was when I was reading it, it really had the same strand of like um, Tolstoyan, like <laughs> Svetlana Alexeyevich, like that kind of granular, 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 granular. Get the editor, come on, uh, granular <laughs> <laughs> like approach to uh, historical retelling, almost kind of. Um, that this one single experience can um, tell you something that looking uh, at an event kind of large scale perhaps would not be able to reveal to you. Um, I'm sure there's other influences besides those two, but those were the ones that came to my mind as I was kind of, as I was reading both forwards and backwards, I guess, uh, to do that. Oh boy, are there ever other influences? Do you, do you want to hear about some of the influences? <laughs> Yes. yes. So one, of the, <laughs> one of the things that I think is interesting about socialist realism is that it's specifically a genre constructed around imitation, right? This is not born out of the romantic idea of the writer as this sort of inspired creator coming up with something completely unique. You can just patchwork your story together out of stuff you've seen elsewhere. And so Part of it is, yeah, going out to the people, going out to the construction sites, going to Stalingrad and interviewing people, observing them in action, asking your brother, hey, bro, can you send me some uh, hot gossip from the milk farm? But also part of it, especially when it comes to Stalingrad, is looking looking for models of texts. And Nilin draws really heavily on um, Konstantin Simonov's novel Days and Nights, which came out in 1943. That's that's the big Stalingrad novel at this point. Grossman's Stalingrad's for a just cause wouldn't be released till 1952. And especially the images of the fighting around the houses, um, especially the image of the Volga, the importance of the river. And there is a beautiful scene where the grandfather goes and pulls off his cap and sticks it into the Volga and feeds water to the grandmother when she's, you know, almost dying from this evacuation. That's that's borrowed pretty much note for note from a story by Simonov where the, uh, the protagonist who is an officer does that. And in turn, Simonov actually draws on a medieval tale. I can't remember whether it's the Leo Vigor's campaign or Zadonshina, so nobody check which one it is, where <laughs> the lead character in whichever one it is drinks, symbolically pulls their helmet off and drinks from the Volga's water or maybe from the Don's water, and it's this sort of great life-giving water. So there's, there's a lot going on there that people would recognise. There's definitely a Tolstoyan influence, Matt. I think you're absolutely right. There always and has to be. I, I mean, especially when it comes to war literature as well. And mm. war literature, all of war literature, but all of Russian war literature in particular, you can't escape Tolstoy. He's just there looming in the background. Um, in here, I think the grandmother's experience of what it's like to go through the city is the most Tolstoyan aspect where she's just confused by battle. She has no idea what's happening. She can't make sense of it. Things are flying at her. Bombs are exploding. There's an elephant for some reason that I don't understand, but it did happen. She doesn't, she just sort of acts on instinct. And that's the Tolstoyan model of the soldier. 
So the grandmother almost briefly becomes a soldier, right? She doesn't fight with bullets. She doesn't pick up a rifle, but she has that experience of the battlefield. So there's all this stuff going on that Nilin draws on, and all of that is designed to signal to the reader what they're supposed to be feeling. And it it gives a framework for these traumatic memories, these flashbacks and flash-forwards that wrench us back and forth along with the grandmother. Right? It gives us something to cling on to. When you see the drinking of the water of the Volga, okay, I get that. I know what we're supposed to be doing. It's almost like, you know, the fairy tales, you know, Vladimir Prop, where, okay, I get it. This is what this is supposed to do. This is what this part is supposed to do. And I mentioned the, the resurrection of Stalingrad, right? When the grandmother or the grandfather dies, that's actually another part that's taken from Simonov's Days and Nights, where, again, it's the, the protagonist, the officer who is shot, nearly dies, and his heart starts beating again. His his love interest is holding his chest and his heart starts beating again as the guns fire up for the great counterattack that wins the battle, which I've rendered it in a way that makes it seem really crappy, but it's not. It's actually a beautiful piece of writing. <laughs> um, and and here, you know, the, grand, the grandfather dies and is nursed back to health, and lo and behold, as he nurse, is nursed back to health, the city finds itself nursed back to health. So the fate of the nation is duly embodied in both Stalingrad and the individual. All of this stuff then couches these individual, these microcosmic experiences, something big, something that is very meaningful. So when we read about these seemingly bizarre construction projects that have nothing to do with anyone and seem very impersonal, they also relate to a much bigger literature and a much bigger sort of cultural push around reconstruction. I I didn't want to take it too off the rails but um we very rarely have the translator of a work come to talk about the work they have translated so i was wondering uh translator of this work if there were any interesting features or approaches that you would take to something like this i know a lot of our listeners are interested in the process of translation myself included too um so i would just be curious to hear kind of how how was it (laughs) i think actually the difficulty in a text like this is twofold. Firstly, getting those flashback, the segues, getting those right was quite hard. Because Russian tenses are, in some ways, more subtle than English tenses. Mm-hmm. Because of the imperfective and perfective aspects, you can be a bit cleverer and a bit more multifaceted in the way than you, that you use those verbs. Whereas English, it's like, here is a menu of 16 items. Which do you want? They all mean exactly one thing. And so finding ways to slide from the one time into the other time is quite hard. The other thing that, of course, is hard in a text like this is finding the right voice for the characters. And so I've, I've rendered it as is my want in this sort of conversational, Britishy kind of English, almost wartime English, almost, you know, how's your father Cockney character for the grandfather, because I think that fits him. But this is the part where you have to, as the translator, allow your imagination to run riot a little bit. That the the translation is an act of creativity in in and of itself, and that you can't you can't capture the language of nineteen fifties or late nineteen forties Stalingrad that has all these Sovietisms and get it right. So, for example, there is a phrase in the text that I translated as "We formed our own little." Stalingrad Construction Co. 
right? Which is, and of course, there were no anything construction codes in the Soviet Union because everything was state-owned. And nobody would have talked like that. But the alternative, I, I can't remember what the Russian was because it was quite a while ago that I translated it. But the alternative in Russian was one of those really sort of heavy administrative sort of Soviet titles. And I just felt that translating it in a more literal way wouldn't quite capture the kind of jaunty and chatty way that the Babushka and Yelushka interact with each other. So it was a guess. And maybe maybe someone would read that Russian and read my English and say, that's bloody horrible decision. What were you thinking? <laughs> but I stand by it. I would too. I think we had that when we were doing... We were doing Solzhenitsyn's Matryona's house, and Cameron was reading one translation, I was reading mine, and mine was significantly funnier and a little bit more satirical in some of the parts, and Cameron had the administrative words, and he was like, I don't understand what's like what's happening. Um, but I think that's good. I think it's definitely hard to kind of strike that balance between uh, authenticity to the text, but also, uh, you know, readability. I, I don't want to have to go look up, you know, these these old 50s administrative terms, like every line uh, to make sure that I've got, uh, you know, the right one as I'm going through. But, um, well, I liked it for what it was, for what it's worth. <laughs> Great. I'll, I'll take that in my poll of one people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's extremely readable. It's going through. Uh, sometimes you kind of get caught up and remember, oh, I'm reading a translation, but it didn't really have that feel and i feel like i'm just bandwagoning with matt now but I, I just did want to say that it was just really an enjoyable read to go through it felt very natural so i think your style your 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 goal in trying to achieve that is really successful in the sense that i didn't even notice it until you brought it up that that was it felt so natural to me when i was going through perfect as somebody who is proofreading a book that includes sixty thousand words worth of translations right now this is music to my ears <laughs> can you talk a little bit about your book and what it is, how you got to it. I, I, I'm I'm curious because it sounds really interesting. Okay, so the book is a compilation of compilation a compilation of compilations. It's not that. You can edit that bit out. So the book is a, <laughs> a compilation of two things. On the one hand, historical commentary and I suppose cultural commentary as well. And on the other hand, translations of stories. And these are stories that were written for the Soviet Central Papers at the Stalingrad Front in 1942, 1943, and then two more stories, one from a decade afterwards and one from two decades afterwards. And what's super, super cool about these stories is that the Soviets didn't just send journalists to the front to write newspaper stories. They sent fiction writers, which is totally in line with everything we've heard about socialist realism and trying to make the vastness of this, the scale of this war and the trauma of this war makes sense. And so what we find in Stalingrad living together and working together are Vasily Grossman, one of the great literary geniuses of the 20th century, if not the great literary genius. Nobody write me anything about that. Again, I stand by it. I said it. I meant it. We find Konstantin Simonov is there, who is hugely underrated in the West, but a brilliant, brilliant prose author. We find Ilya Ehrenburg is not there for very long because he's quite old, but he does visit very briefly. We find Boris Polyovoy, who is a huge socialist realist author. We find another 12, 15 authors who are all there. And they aren't just sitting behind the lines, you know, 10 miles behind the lines, sort of seeing what's going on. They go off to the front. They're in Stalingrad, just like Babushka in this story, seeing the fire, seeing the flames. 
experiencing it for themselves and writing up these these works of fiction and basically they create this whole myth of Stalingrad as this great sacrifice and resurrection they make the whole war make sense for the nation and for Stalin as well because Stalin nips in at the end and claims all the credit for himself cheeky bastard that he is (laughs) and yet nobody's ever looked at these stories before really so this came out of my PhD dissertation where I, I looked at a much broader swathe of Stalingrad in Soviet literature I thought people need to read these stories because they, they are genuinely great this Pavel Nilian story is interesting right but these some of these stories are genuinely great pieces of literature and so you can read in the book month by month the stories that are written as we hear about this horrible bombing raid in August as we hear about hope ebbing away and then this glorious and very unexpected counterattack things getting better and then we fast forward 10 years ahead to see some of this reconstruction in action from somebody that's there and then 20 years ahead to to hear of a veteran who was at the front and can't make sense of all of this and and that's Viktor Nukrasov who's I think the other very very great Soviet Stalingrad author I think he stands in terms of Stalingrad work stands side by side with Grossman in terms of greatness and in this the story that closes the work which is it's it's a really magnificent piece of writing it's it's stunningly good and if you think this one is weird and personal and plays with time for a socialist realist work wait till wait till you see this Nekrasov story you're gonna lose your minds (laughs) I can't wait I'm excited. You're deeply surprised of of when that's coming out because I'm I'm just jazzed. This is like this is stuff I love. I, I love oh prepare uh, this prepare era of history, for an so. onslaught of shameless <laughs> self promotion when it's ready. I'm, I'm no happy. I would love to <laughs> love to have it. I was going through your I was going through your blog today. I've just been, it's all been super fascinating. I, it was actually right before we jumped on was entranced by article on sci fi mythology of of Stalingrad and modern Russia. Just all. I'll link the blog in the show notes. It's it's really cool. I've I've been enjoying everything so far. <laughs> I know I, I hate to pull Cameron away because the original book that you had, had suggested was was pretty long, and I and he was like, oh, I think I'll just read it anyways. And I was like, we gotta we gotta crank the shows out though. Um, <laughs> but he's and he's like, so but we're gonna return to it. And I was like, we can return to it. <laughs> well, if you wanna if you wanna talk uh, about Nikrasov and in the trenches of Stalingrad at some point, that is a majestic work. It's a brilliant piece of writing i do i would yeah yeah but it is longer yeah. it's not it grossman is. long nobody nobody panic is listening <laughs> it's only 200 pages long you can read it in an afternoon a nice reasonable long or you know we could do all of life and fate in one episode i'm sure one hour is enough to cover everything in that book <laughs> you if you're gonna do it you've got to do you've got to do the stalingrad novel first you've got to okay. do both stalingrad and life and fate I've got, I've got to do it. We've got to like create a whole pathway here for the proper uh, proper introduction of each of these works. <laughs> you start start from from influence to outcome, or you could do it kind of like the Star Wars, how they have like what is it the you know the order is the the separate order, so you can read them all, so you save the main twist till the end. Uh, you could do do one of those maybe. <laughs> I haven't I haven't previously thought of using Star Wars as a guide for planning out content here, but no, good, good point, Matt. Thank you. <laughs> Did you have any other things to cover? I'll defer to Ian on this one. Do you think um, is, is there any major last points of the story you thought would be good to bring up? I think I think we've bled the story for what it's worth. <laughs> That's what we're here for. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good have night. Have a great evening.
All right, perfect. Well, Matt, uh, what, as sad as I am to leave this episode, what are we reading next episode? Next episode, we're going to be starting our next long series, which is going to be on Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky. For part one, we're going to be joined by Dr. Catherine Bowers, who is, among many other things, a professor at the University of British Columbia and the vice president of the North American Dostoevsky Society. We'll be covering uh, one part per episode and have a lot of really interesting guests lined up. Uh, If you're planning on reading along with us, be sure to pick up your copy through our affiliate links on our website. We also very excitingly now have links for audiobooks, so go ahead and check those out if you want to support your local bookstore while you listen along. Uh, We earn a little bit of money from qualifying purchases, and it is much appreciated. Yes, and you don't want to not read Crime and Punishment as we're going along, because although we're going to be discussing quite a bit, there is so much that you can really only experience uh, by reading it yourself. So we'd highly encourage that you do. Do it. Right now. Read it. (laughs) Live it. Love it. Live the crime. (laughs) Love the punishment. It's Dostoevsky. If you commit any axe murders, make sure to wear our axe shirt. (laughs) Oh, yeah. We got merch now. That's crazy. We got so much stuff. We'll talk about it next episode. It's going to be great. Before we let you go, we want to extend a sincere thank you to all of our current patrons. Drew, Jeff, Janice, Anne, Jesse, Madeline, Alex, Daniel, Irini, Paige, Darren, Larkin, Lou, Brandon, Allison, Gary, Cole, Daniel, Jack, Lucy, Alex, Roland, Elise, Mysterious, Donor Dude, Joanne, and Drew W. Podcasting isn't free and grad school doesn't pay very well, so if you're interested in joining with our current patrons to keep the show running... Take a look at our Patreon at patreon.com slash tipsytolstoy. The music used in this episode was Soviet March by Toasted Tomatoes. You can find more of their stuff on toastedtomatoes.bandcamp.com and also on YouTube under the same username. If you're looking for other places to find us, you can also follow our Instagram at tipsytolstoypodcast or join our email list on our website, tipsytolstoy.com. You'll hear from us again soon.